0: Run podcast. I'm Tristan Black and, Grisole, and this is Black Cat's Run. A few episodes back, we came swooping in with some insight on lactate threshold. The response was very positive, and there was overwhelming demand for another episode looking further into That subject. Before we get started with today's episode, I want to thank again all of our listeners and acknowledge our international audience. Sport and the pursuit of sport, as we try to gain a sense of achievement and what can oftentimes be an alienating experience of life, is clearly something that ties people together across cultural spaces. And it's awesome to know that from here in New England, we're reaching out to people not only in the United States but also the UK, Australia, Belgium, Germany, Japan, Switzerland, Norway, Canada, and Colombia. Thanks to everybody for your continued support and engagement. In today's episode, we are going to fully dive into the territory of paradigm shift, the kind that would bring tears of joy and pride to Thomas Kuhn's eyes. After a lot of research, I feel very confident that what we are going to present here is not only the best approach to using Lactate Threshold as an organizing principle for training, but also that what we are talking about and discussing in this pod is miles past the level of understanding of the concept that people around the world from the level of neophyte to world-class elite are doing. As always though, we are here to advance the conversation By presenting a perspective it's not only inevitable but desirable that our knowledge and understanding of the intersection between human experience physiology and the brain is going to continue to expand in dynamic ways in the future we are available here on black cat's run to consult with people about your training your experience in sport You can check us out on at Black Cats Run, send us a message if you would like to learn more, or if you'd just like to let us know how you're enjoying the podcast so far. If you know anybody else who enjoyed the podcast, we'd love it if you would reach out to them, share the pod with them. Thank you. Let's get into today's episode. Can we trust what we see around us? Can we trust the things that we think that we remember? There's been a fair amount of research over the years into these kinds of phenomena, the phenomena of perception, the phenomena of awareness. You can think more specifically about something like eyewitness testimony. And what has become pretty clear is that there's an inherent difficulty for us as human beings to take what we believe we are perceiving and use that knowledge that we gain from our natural processes of observation and reach the best possible conclusion or explanation. That's why training and trying to make sense of athletic sport, achievement, and performance is so complex and so difficult. And that's why it's such a fascinating problem to engage with. In studying history, historians often think about a particular kind of memory, one that isn't the psychology of any given individual, but is more of a collective phenomena of whole societies and our behavior and propensities around the kind of storytelling and search for cultural concepts of causation and looking at why things are the way they are, how things are likely to become in the future. And the phenomena with historical memory, what becomes pretty clear is that the most powerful thing in shaping that isn't the reality, but it's the fabric of what we decide. Reality is. And that's not to say that reality isn't real. There is a best possible explanation for everything because everything functions along actual lines of causation. But there's a huge disconnect between the knowledge that we have and the actual reality of those threads of cause and effect. And you see this phenomena in historical memory, and then you recognize. That sport and athletics and a lot of what we're trying to do in terms of understanding what are the best practices that we can apply to our athletic goals, how can we improve performance, how can we become fit, how can we create and access the kind of positive experience that motivated us to pick up sports in the first place, becomes really tied into that phenomenon of historical memory. So much of sport is the study of history. And when you look at this stuff from that perspective, and if you have some training or experience in academic approaches to history, and you have taught about not only the nature of identifying causation and the challenges that obviously are then entailed in trying to do that, but if you also have an awareness of the way in which people's perspectives can cause us to not recognize the limitations to the evidence in front of us. And so I suppose in a way you could say that any attempt to reach a conclusion about the past is kind of an act of hubris because it's not possible to process all of the information. And, you know, there's whole considerations to what is a fact versus what are the facts of history. And a lot of the things that are facts of the historical past don't rise to that level. And we see that same problem when we think about a concept like lactate threshold, one of the things that we want to expand on in this episode is recognizing contextually, and I want to acknowledge other podcasts like the On Coaching podcast with Steve Magnus and John Marcus who have talked about this, um, but what are the historical concepts that either explicitly are about lactate threshold or are things where we can decode and recognize something that it might be reasonable to conclude is an approximation of lactate threshold. But if we're going to take that perspective, we need to recognize that we're going to see things through our own lens of bias and understanding. And so in order to understand where training is and is not effective, what lactate threshold is, and how an understanding of lactate threshold can not only help us better understand how to train, but also better understand the history of training Becomes really powerful because if you can better understand what lactate threshold is, when you go to try to decode training, you can use this as a tool to try to understand okay, what are different individuals doing? What are different groups or athletic cultures doing? And how does it relate to that kind of a concept? But there is overwhelming confusion and ambiguity, and I think sometimes outright misinformation about what this concept is. And it becomes sort of totemistic in the sense that people will throw the term around, again, as we've talked about in other episodes, because it becomes more about signifying a level of in-status within an athletic cultural space than it is about actual knowledge. So what we want to try to do is explore all of these different things, both define what it is better in a specific sense, articulate more clearly how you can actually use that in a real way because one of the most exciting things about sport is that you get to decide at the end of the day as the individual what your strategy is going to be, right? And if you don't like the environment that you're in, right, and that environment is driving that strategy, as an individual engaging in sports, you can change that environment. So, We're going to talk about that too, right? How could you apply that to your environment? And then the third piece, in a sense, that we're trying to weave into this is trying to better understand how can this shift our perspective on how sport has developed over time and does it give us a better reference point for where we can sort of make distinctions between, well, is this training practice hard, but still about this sort of feel good concept Versus another training practice, which is also hard, but is about a path of discipline concept, because that's what becomes confusing. And there's oftentimes also a sense that, and I hear this from people all the time in conversations. I see it online. I read it in books about training. You see it in the historical record about sports culture. There's this fear that if we aren't going hard enough, that we won't be seen as seen as legitimate, and this need to validate or assert things as hard is really, I think, something that skews our historical memory, because we will represent our narrative of sport and try to emphasize the nature of hard, right? But at the same time, downplaying the idea of pain. So it's to demonstrate, essentially, that we engaged with acts of significant distress and adversity. And by willingly seeking those out, we were able to transform through that rite of passage and become something more than what other people were able to do. And by not acknowledging or talking about the level of actual experience stress, like in a sense, you know, physical pain, we're then showing how, you know, superior and elevated we are in our mastery of that kind of resistance. So let's start by talking about pain, because pain Has so much to do not only with lactate threshold, but everything that we're trying to accomplish when we're trying to do sport. There's two perspectives, and they're in keeping with our distinction between the path of discipline in sport versus what we're advocating for in the podcast in general, seeking out more of a state in which engaging in sport is something that feels good. And the first concept of pain the path of discipline concept is focused on the notion that pain is something that your ability to tolerate it or respond to it or deal with it or also just sort of not acknowledge it is something that is reflective of your strength of character. The second perspective says that Pain is a thing that is a consequence of external environment in many ways. As I'm recording this episode, it's currently 40 degrees below zero here in New England with the wind chill. If you go outside, you will get frostbite if you are exposed skin for enough time. It's just what will happen. You can't mentally will yourself past that reality pain is something that we experience and the value of that pain or that discomfort and pain is such an intense word that i think oftentimes people don't even want to talk about it but the value of pain as a concept and as an experience is it's a reference point for what's possible so when we're trying to train or race Or do a lot of other different kinds of things, we reach a point of resistance. And that resistance is external. But if we didn't have an experience of discomfort or pain, we wouldn't have any way to understand that we've reached a point of resistance, right? That's how we're sensitive to our environment. So the body is sending out these signals that we generalize or simplify into the concept of pain, although the sort of spectrum and forms of Distress response that are trying to get us to stop doing whatever it is we're doing, or at least getting us to sort of do some sort of cost-benefit analysis and say, "Is this really worth it? Right? Do I really need to be doing this?" The body is not sending that out for at random, right? That's tied to things that are happening internally, and that the brain is responding to those things via right the nervous system, presumably. And it's, you know, sending out these things because selectively that has been an effective mechanism for survival, right? We've evolved these traits of response. So the idea that we need to totally override them and the idea that we can totally override them through an act of will, I think is something of an absurdity. I mean, you'll pass out at a certain point in theory, but people talk about throwing up in training still in in a lot of social spaces i mean those are not the spaces in sport that i've been engaged with the only time i've thrown up in relation to sport was when i down an entire dark purple power raid 30 seconds after finishing a half mile race you know and i think that may more have to do with just my particular sensitivity to the sugar concentration in that than it is anything else when people experience too much distress or pain in training, bad things happen. They don't improve. Then they might lose interest, right? And sometimes that loss of interest is not just a moving on thing. Sometimes it can be sort of psycholo- psychologically cataclysmic in a sense that when we've really invested in something and we've built our identity around that, and then it just sort of collapses around us as if we were like in a dream the whole time and we had no knowledge that we were in a dream when we were in it, it can be really difficult. And people can really grapple with that sometimes indefinitely because we don't really support people around those kinds of experiences in the way that would allow people to contextualize that And move past that. And a part of the way that you move past that is you actually maybe go back to that problem or challenge or adversity if it's in the context of athletics, because those are things that should be and can be healthy spaces. And you redefine your experience, but you're going to have to do that by changing your approach. You also see a much higher incident rate of injuries, that injuries happen when people push into that state too much, especially with running, when you have something that is more impact intensive. Well, you're pushing, your body is saying, this isn't good. And your belief is, this is the resistance, right? I am the resistance and I am the consciousness resisting this evil overlord of this you know, inner self, this internal pussy or whatever the hell term you want to use for it. And that I have to overcome that. I have to crush that and subjugate that. And doing that is this noble heroic thing of the David and standing up to your inner Goliath kind of absurdity. But you go over that state and bad things happen. It's very, very unusual to see people who train really at, at and beyond that pain point with a lot of frequency and don't have problems. But overwhelmingly, I see this as kind of the original reference point which I think everything is reactive to thresholds, whether people use the word threshold or not. And this original concept of threshold, I think, was the pain threshold. It was the race specificity threshold. People are saying, well, what's the point of failure? What's holding me back? Well, I start to experience blank, and then I start to slow down. Well, that's what happens. If the body is telling you that we're not going to do this anymore, and eventually it's just going to turn up the intensity and turn up the intensity of that distress until your consciousness can't do anything, right? And, you know, I I think I don't know anybody who's ever done a workout and to the point of blacking out, but, you know, the idea of passing out, blacking out, you know, right? Is that a a protective mechanism in a way where if you're refusing to respond to those signals, right, you escalate to that point, right? Or if you're in a situation, which would be really obviously unfortunate, where you can't escape that distress, right? At a certain point, you might, your brain might just sort of turn itself off, right? Into that passed out, blacked out state of unconsciousness. You know, why does that happen? Right. Maybe it happens for a reason, right? Because we want our consciousness isn't processing that information. So when we think about that concept, right, we can say, okay, so that's sort of like our first threshold. And I think that's the original threshold that we learn about. That's how we interact. You know, with the world around us, right? You know, we learn surfaces are hot or cold because of the pain or the distress that we experience in response to them. But then we've made, I think, this totally inaccurate assumption where we've concluded that, okay, we need to be in that point of distress. And then we need to get past that and into the distress state because somehow that is what's going to allow us to improve. And I think all training that has been devised into these physiological models has been biased significantly biased in the process of study because it's assumed an inherent validation of being in that highly distressed state and the way in which studies are designed you know really alters the effect of this stuff and there has been stuff done again and again to validate in these comparative studies the utility of training at the levels of extreme distress you know vo2 max isn't really a thing 52 percent of people who do vo2 max tests don't actually actually exhibit the kind of plateau that according to that test protocol you know indicates the vo2 max you know we've just sort of constructed that as this thing and then because it gets passed along everybody's like oh vo2 max that's that must be a thing but I think that that concept is a product of the idea that like, well, the more intensively we train, the better we're going to do. And then the studies are structured where they're not a true opportunity cost model. And by opportunity cost model, I mean, we really want to figure out if a particular kind of training is good, we need to control that against somebody else or some other group of people doing the like next best alternative, okay? Okay. Because the value of training for any given individual, how do we figure out, right, what do we need to do uniquely? Because there is no panacea. And I had this book that was written maybe 20 years ago about lactate threshold. I was looking through it the other day. I was like, I should start looking at this again. That might be really helpful for the podcast. And I know this is incredibly bad. It's all based on these standardized ideas of universality. Everybody's heart rate can be calculated in particular ways. This means this, this means this, and you realize like this is all garbage. But if you're in a space of more naivety where you don't really know and you're looking for something to answer your questions, you're gonna pick this up. You're gonna read words like glycolysis, you're gonna read words like anaerobic, okay? You're gonna read words like phosph- you know, creatine and you know, phosphates, and and you're gonna be like, this must be legitimate. And it's not. And in this episode and other episodes where we talk about this concept of the lactate threshold, we're going to try to elevate our level of understanding so we can see through all that bullshit when it's presented to us. Because we end up wasting a lot of time and energy and making ourselves oftentimes and unfortunately pretty miserable chasing things that are ineffective. You have to apply the maximum possible alternative, but that's going to be constrained by people's concept of what that should look like. And if you don't do that correctly, then you can't reach any kind of conclusion. Now, you could be cynical and you could put it in the other direction and say, well, you can't disprove that either. I don't agree because you have all of this real-world evidence. And when you look at the most successful models of training and you take the concept of lactate threshold, what you start to see is that people have arrived at that understanding through some pedagogical way, um, some empirical way, Or oftentimes a combination of both. They've arrived at applying that. And I think the big myth of this stuff is that training is most effective when it doesn't feel that hard. And you can become engaged with adversity in such a way where maybe if you're new, it would feel hard, but over time you normalize and you adjust to that environment. But we are told, we're trained literally to train at the point of near failure and that the idea that that is going to reward us the most. And I have conversations with people about this and have had for the last 10 years at least, and it's just been incredibly difficult. And at a certain point, you have to say, well, people are entitled to create the experience they want. And if battling with this intense pain and distress If that's a part of the experience they want, right, then we have to respect that. And We've talked about that before on the pod, right, respecting people's uh, decisions to to be miserable. Arthur Lydiard, quote, if during any of these runs you find you have to ease back to regain rhythm and recovery of breath, you'll be warned that you have moved into the anaerobic phase. This is neither economical nor desirable. Unquote. This is from running with Lydiard. I think, and I know actually, that some people have an attitude towards Arthur Lydiard where they say, Well, let's look at the stuff that he said, you know, earliest. And well, we're gonna judge him forward from that point. But I think that's incredibly ignorant because, you know, when people think about this stuff, they become better at articulating what they want to say over time, and their understandings can still improve. So the idea that, you know, there's some sort of original Lydiard, and I've heard the argument made that, well, you know, he watered this stuff down, because, you know, he's trying to make money and and sell books. And, you know, I I mean, I suppose there's a, a plausible argument to that. But I don't think there was anything about Arthur Lydiard's life experience, that seems to ju- suggest that he was somebody who had an intention of making as much money as he could. So I think that's a little overly cynical to assume that a profit-seeking motivation led him to represent his, his stuff away from the original. And then I think what that, though, opens the door for people to do rhetorically is to just not have to engage with or acknowledge the value of what literature is doing. In particular, the struggle there is a the struggle of pain. It's the pain they experienced in training. Um, John Marcus on the uh, on coaching podcast with Steve Magnus and John Marcus, they are talking about uh, you know the Norwegian lactate training. And towards the end of the episode, they make reference to the five to six mile threshold runs that they've done in the past. And John Marcus, who has a concept of you know doing a kind of like speed repetition interval you know basically shorter periods of training with breaks and then another short workout and different variations of that is really something that he's really interested in as a coach and as somebody who's just you know I think also just in general interested about how you get you get fitter right from a intellectual standpoint and he they talk about this and they say well the 5 to 6 mile you know, steady state runs that were you know supposed to be threshold were just incredibly hard. And, and John Marcus says something effective, I absolutely hated those, those were the worst. So that continuous running. and then they go in to say, well, you know when you can break it up, you don't have to do it like that. But what if the issue isn't that you need to break it up? What if the issue is just that the intensity is too high? So when you look at the Lydiard people, and you say, well, they were just training so hard, and you seek to validate that they were training so hard. It's a way to basically say, well, you can't really do that. Yeah, but they did what they did and they got the results that they got and adjusted for all of the sort of like race environment and little pieces of, you know, shoe technology and whatnot, and you know, the availability of performance-enhancing drugs like EPO that, you know, we know. By logic, that at least some percentage of you know Olympic and World Championship finalists are taking EPO. By the way, guess what that does? Mitochondrial biogenesis. Um, it's reasonable to assume that those athletes would be just as competitive for making World Championship and Olympic finals today as they were back then. The other thing too is this idea of like alienizing uh, people who are in their twenties. Um, in the fifties and the sixties, uh, as if that was just some eternity ago, and people have not evolved, but have like somehow devolved the capacity to handle that, or that there was just sort of some insane level of torture to it. Why can't we take the perspective and say if they did it, it must have been because it was doable, right? And it's weird to hear John Marcus talk about how the fact that they trained like that for six months is somehow proof of how difficult it was in a sense. But like, isn't the logical and rational conclusion to say, if they did it for six months, it must have been doable. Six weeks, maybe you could force yourself, right? But six months, you're probably not forcing yourself for six months. But go back to that quote, within that, you have to ease back again to regain rhythm and recovery of breath. What does that mean? Well, that's referring to a threshold. And when you take this understanding of lactate threshold and you look at the stuff, you start to see this. But what people want to focus on is they want to focus on the pace. And their fascination with the pace and that paces are subject to, you know, historical memory, you know, and eyewitness testimony, it's not reliable. Okay, it's just not reliable. What people say the paces are, we don't know how accurately they're being measured. You know, with GPS watches, people's paces are get, get messed up all the time. Okay? And it's a huge game of telephone. Stories grow in the retelling, you know, and and people don't have that sort of constant state of memory, right? We're not looking at a community of people where everybody who's done top-level running has an eidetic memory and literally has exact capture of what this stuff was. That's not an occurrence. That's not a phenomena here. So I don't think there's reliable evidence to to draw from that. I think what you have to look at is the subjective subjective descriptions of how it felt. And when you look at that, that's what you need to key off of. But we look at the paces, we apply our concept of how intense that must be. Okay? And I think too, you have this thing where it's like, if you were a top runner um, at some point in your life, you know, maybe an elite American distance runner, middle distance runner, um, maybe you didn't quite get to the Olympic level, but you were kind of like in that general category of like, you know, top elite, you know, top all American level runners. I think you get this sense of like, well, people in the past, they were running these times. I'm running this time. I can't imagine training like that. So that must have just been insane. But nobody was making them do it. They weren't in a labor camp of distance running. And I think what happens is you just essentially wash away the integrity of what you can learn here. So let's connect this concept to our concept of feet per rep per mile in training. Okay? When we're doing that, when we're riding, and we talked about this in the Win Pro nets. Uh, series, which is still ongoing. So, if you aren't familiar with this, you haven't checked that out. You go to that, and you'll you'll learn more about what we mean by this. But essentially, the more feet per rep that you have per mile of riding, with irregardless of velocity, okay, you see a higher level of performance. You see better VAM in the athletes, right? You basically see that they can climb faster, and I think that's because. If we're going to use lactate threshold as this sort of interpretive framework, I think what we can conclude is that, well, on the bike, if you're doing that, you're probably spending more time working towards that high level within that lactate threshold. But the irrespective of velocity thing means it's not about trying to push yourself to go really hard. It's not about getting into that pain state. And actually, the people who did lower volume of training with really high um, feet per rep per mile and high VAM, they do not perform well in racing, okay? Because they aren't getting that benefit. They are working into the pain zone and they're spending as much time in there as they can. and, And VO2 max concepts of training are one thing that drives people to that point. Now, lactate threshold, this is not the holy grail. The whole is greater than the part. Um, we need to understand that. Okay, this isn't about finding this um, golden ticket or silver bullet or magic key. And oftentimes we're w- looking for all of the stuff to fall into place in that way. Now we can get to the point where all of this stuff sort of clicks. And I actually think, ironically, lactate threshold does have the ability to do that. But from an perspective of understanding like how hard we actually want to train, not necessarily from the perspective of, oh, here's the workout, just keep hitting this workout and you'll finally climb that ladder all the way to the top. It's not about that because training always has to be developed, adapted, readapted. That's the value of a coach is there's somebody who should be able to help with that process and guide and engage in that collaborative effort. The whole is greater than the part. That's one of Euclid's principles. Overemphasis on a benchmark like lactate threshold is not only possible, it's the norm. And that overemphasis has led to misunderstanding. And then ironically, I would say an underemphasis because if you're emphasizing a thing that's not actually what that thing is, you've constructed the idea that you're emphasizing it. And so then it looks externally like you're overemphasizing it. But you're really just paying attention to a thing that isn't it. And there's an abundance of confusion about this stuff. And a part of this comes from this sort of um industrial mindset. There's a slide presentation online uh from Indigo San Milan, who is Pogacar's coach, um, right, youngest ever rider to win the Tour de France. And in it, he references or refers to. Uh, Peter Ducker, um, who he cites as sort of inventing management or the science of management, and points to that as sort of this idea of like, well, this is how you get things to be better. And I don't agree with that, you know, because uh, what about cultures that are successful without that kind of, you know, Western industrial management mindset? And then, you know, when you see these other cultures being successful in that, and I would argue more successful Um, when you compare them to, say, American endurance athletes, what does that suggest about the value of that management strategy, right? Is management, you know, something that improves performance, or is it something that constrains and limits performance? Because, right, is performance more complex than that? So, how do we use lactate threshold is also important. What we want to understand is how does it feel to be productive? That's the utility of lactate threshold is it helps us code and decode and recode and constantly re-evaluate what does it mean to feel productive? Because we're going to gravitate to the pain concept. That's the point of resistance. The instinct, clearly, based on how people approach this stuff, is to find that point of resistance and push against it and push against it. And this whole narrative in You know, of elite athletes. I went to a really dark place. I've been to a place I've never been to in that race. Stop. Just stop, right? That's heroic glamorization, right? We seek out those narratives because of the social value and the sense of achievement that we get if that can be accorded and associated with us. The person who wins the race is the person who had to use the least amount of effort, okay? That's how it works, because if somebody else was you know had less energy then they would just come up and then they would win. that's how it works. So you know the idea right of oh, I take on more pain I take on no, when you win, it's because you're taking on the least amount of pain. when you do better, it's because you can experience less pain and distress at what you're trying to do than before. Why should? training feels so hard why should racing feel so hard i honestly don't find racing to feel that hard and i don't really think that good training should feel any harder than racing and if your racing feels really hard and awful then maybe we need you would need to reevaluate your racing and what that feels like so we say we what we want to understand is how does it feel productive that's validated through improvement but it's complicated by opportunity cost, right? How do we know if what we're doing is the best possible form of improvement? Because basically what we can reasonably conclude, maybe the obvious conclusion is that lots of different things can contribute to improvement, that we can do lots of things and improve, including things that are harmful and negative. You can train and get injured and go through that cycle again and again and still in the aggregate improve. And I think this idea of empirical management Is sort of overlooking all that aspect of the experience. And I think when I have conversations with people, I say, You're training too hard. You know, I think a lot of times that seems antithetical to the idea of improving performance. Because from this empirical perspective, it's like training hard is accumulating these units of work at these desired levels of distress. And that, like, to do that is to train hard. And if you're not doing that, it's not hard. And you know, ironically, it's like, well, you don't want to train too hard. like So you want to be miserable, but like you don't want to be too miserable, but you still got to be pretty miserable, right? And again, that whole like, wow, they train so hard. I mean, training hard, whatever the original meaning of that word was in training, I think has been totally lost and repackaged. You know, we had an episode where we talked about the idea of being a savage. And I think to me, training hard is sort of morphed into that kind of a concept of somebody who subjugates their environment, right? You really should talk about training well, right? The distinction of no pain, no gain versus train, don't strain. And I think these phrases sort of wash over people, and especially the train, don't strain. You know, it rhymes, it's three words, could be a jingle, people don't really think about what it means, but that carries a weight of truth well beyond the weight of its syllables. We talked about the Marius Backen article where he sort of refers to the Kenyans as just sort of knowing. And there's not really a lot of inquisitiveness or wanting to understand how they're getting to that understanding. It's just like they know. And I think the only thing that sort of seemed to gesture at some sort of explanation was reference to the effect, well, they live at altitude, as if somehow living at altitude gives you some implicit knowledge. He also talked about how, you know, in, in testing, um, people with a lactate meter in that running population that, you know, he saw variance in the lactate threshold numbers um, and that for some of them, you know, they're at a very low state. So obviously people aren't swarming the countryside um, or the training grounds um, of, you know, these high performing Kenyan athletes, you know, and the lactate meters and just lactate strips littering the side of the road any more than there are people swarming, you know, the 50 states of America or, you know, anywhere else with these things. You know, the application and the use of these, I think, is really limited, not because of its value. I think it actually is very valuable. Um, but I think it's limited because people have set the concept of what the threshold is incorrectly. And that's a part of the problem um, that we can identify in the way that people choose to talk about and present on this stuff and, you know, and trying to average things. Um, and think, talk about these findings in a generalized sense instead of you know looking at what really matters, which is that individual experience, the individualization, which is not some sort of a modern coddling. It's literally has to be individual. If you do not do it on an individual basis, if you do not test it, you cannot know it. And you're better off not using lactate at all and you should just focus on that intuitive improvisational mindset and trying to get to that point. Two millimoles is not your lactate threshold. Four millimoles is not your anaerobic threshold. There isn't an anaerobic threshold. We don't, you know, go into some alternative energy system due to the absence of oxygen and all of the energy systems are working all of the time, you know, maybe to varying degrees. But the aerobic and then your anaerobic thing, does it have pedagogical value? Yes. Is it real? No. The pedagogical value is what Littier did with it, and those guys in his group did with it, is they found that thing that must have been the lactate threshold for them. And then they trained within that. Training at lactate threshold isn't really that hard, it's significantly more than training at your sort of naturally found, like totally conversational, relaxed state. If you want to continue to use, The concepts of zones like lactate threshold is definitely harder than what most people would find to be zone two, but it's not hard. You're not in the pain state. You're at the point where you can tell that you're doing work. You're at the point where your breathing is more rhythmic, where you might, if you are talking to somebody, periodically pause and scoop up a big breath of air or expel a big breath, but you're not really in distress. And you can basically sort of you know zone out and as long as you're practiced in what you're doing you can just continue to do do it. it doesn't require this cognitive overload to resist the body's resistance to your desire to create an effort so i don't think that we just know as is the conclusion right that non-investigatory non-investigatory non-reflective view of the kenyan runners I don't think that people just know or don't know, right? All understandings are arrived at. The pedagogical environment of a culture leads people to that. And so we need to be mindful of defaulting into those sort of creepy primitivist undertones when looking at societies and cultures outside of the bubble of our concept of what of what is the developed west. Because those basically become racist biases And those racist biases are implicit in some of, maybe a lot of our cultural perspectives. And what's important to understand, um, not because we're trying to downplay, but because it is the most accurate understanding, is this doesn't even mean that anybody is racist per se, but it's this broadening effect of perspective, right? It's a perspective bias where we see the application of these concepts because that's what's often been modeled. And when we ourselves haven't maybe been really reflective or engaged in something, you know, like cultural anthropology, right, then we might just sort of default to these kinds of like, well, they're that, so that kind of thinking. Like, well, they're Kenyan, so they know, right? But that that's idiotic, demeaning, and you know, in worst-case application, it's a de facto racist assumption because it's saying, well, there's just this distinction of character and there's nothing really to understand. That's just sort of in, in their identity. And not only is that bad and unhealthy culturally, but it's also just wrong. And you really limit the opportunity to understand this stuff. I would want to know pedagogically, Like, what is the environment that is allowing people to understand it? And I also want to know, you know, what percentage of people who try to get to that level of proficiency and running actually get there? How many people drop out? Why do they quit? Why do they walk away? Are they unable to navigate to that space? Because that's the other thing implied in that assertion as well. The Kenyan athletes, they just know. But I think the really top performing elite athletes will know. And the top performing elites who struggle and are inconsistent have injury problems. I don't think that they know. And a lot of people are successful despite what they do because there's many ways to improve, but there's an optimal way to improve the most. And that I think is the same space as having that feel good state. And I think this lactate threshold points to that. I think that the Larcer Lidia runners were fast as fuck, but I don't think. They were training as hard as we think. And I think it's because they did training at a level that allowed them to get to the point where they could do things that other people couldn't do, especially that disconnect between them and their contemporaries. I think really led, and the lack of their contemporaries didn't understand what they were doing. Right. So there's a tendency to be like, well, what are my options? I can look at this and say, wow, I am. Really, not doing this correctly. Or you can just say, well, what they're doing is insane and impossible. Well, everybody else is just going to project their concept of what it feels like to run five miles. And they're going to say, well, they're doing 20 miles a day. I couldn't imagine doing what I'm doing four times as much every day, never mind doing it in continuous bouts of 10, 15, or 20 miles. And so I think that's where that comes from. Um, And primary documents, you know aside i think again those constructions of paces i think you got to ask the question how accurate are those can we is it really realistic to trust those sorts of charts or findings and then you got to look at and say well how fast would these people be today and then those training paces is that really out of the ordinary but again the core the core understanding is if they're doing it for 6 months if they're running 100 miles a week okay let's just say they average six minute pace, right? And that's significant because this loads it in favor of having to do even more lactate threshold. Let's say they're doing they're doing 10 hours a week, week of lactate threshold. And then they're maybe doing another six to eight hours a week of running. And then their total miles are doing 150 to 170. You can't do that for six months if it's impossibly hard. You can only do it for six months if it's manageable and you feel good doing it. And I think that's... Where we need to come from, from that historical perspective, that's what needs to change in making that interpretation. So from that point, I think what we can recognize is that this lactate threshold stuff has been around for a long time, and maybe there's a rediscovery through the use of this stuff and using the, identifying the lactate threshold correctly, because I think the lactate meters have been around for since the 80s people have been testing this stuff i don't know exactly the timeline of the portable stuff but that's been around at least for a little while and it didn't lead to i mean you go all the way through the 90s and you have absolutely you know uncompetitive levels of performance by endurance athletes in western cultures now it's not the lactate it's not cuz of the lactate thing that's not what we're trying to either say or and we're certainly not trying to imply that either but it's certainly the case that the introduction of these, this testing wasn't leading to performance, right? And we've seen increase in performance in the last 15 to 10 years, approximately, maybe a little bit longer than that, maybe closer to 17 years now. And it's because the general amount of training has gone up. And there's a relationship, right, where like the more of something you do, right, the less intensively you can do it. So if people are training more, that means they're logically must be training less intensively. So that's pretty significant. I think what we're seeing right now is an attempt to use the lactate meter to say, I need to be under control, which is what, and I have some other quotes in here uh, too that we'll get to over this episode and our other episodes, we're exploring this lactate threshold concept and what the actual best interpretation and application is it. But now, I think we're seeing people use it to say, "I need to be under control." And that's what Lydia did is he's teaching people to be under control. Coaching is an act of teaching. It should be. Telling people training schedules isn't coaching. That's just writing things down on a piece of paper. It doesn't help people. But you know, that's the sort of economic environment. That's a subject for another podcast. So here's some questions. Number one, is it better to arrive at training? with lactate threshold pedagogically or empirically? I think the answer is both, okay? I think the answer is both. I think that if Lydiard had access to a portable lactate meter, I think that that only would have led to further levels of improvement because they could have refined that approach and they could have increased the value of the training and they would have had a better way to track that over time. But you need to learn about it. You need to know what it means. And I think... There's this idea as athletes of like I don't need to understand anything. I just tell me what to do. I'll just go and you know. And then my skills, as the athlete is is to just handle the handle the pain. And that's incorrect. Number two, why are we getting so confused um, from the empirical approach to lactate threshold and to endurance training in general, for that matter? Um, well, look at the different models you find online. I posted this on the Instagram a little while ago when I was standing particularly fired up about this. If you haven't seen it, I encourage you to take a look. And this is what you see. I posted nine different graphs representing lactate threshold. some of them from websites, some of them are screenshots I took from YouTube videos. And I put the link, I typed the link into all of these, right, cite your sources, I put the link in there, you can go follow the link um, and see for yourself. But what you see is that there is no consensus on where to identify the lactate threshold. Okay? So I'm going to tell you first, the lactate threshold is the point at which if you go any harder, you start to accumulate lactate. If you go any harder, you start to accumulate lactate. Let's talk about these graphs, and then I'll talk talk to you about why that point is the key point to understand. First graph this graph I actually agree with. It points to lactate threshold as the point that I just described. And then you go to the second graph. This is a screenshot from a YouTube video explaining, um, I think it's for a business that wants to do testing, and it was explaining, well, this is what we're going to do, and this is what we're going to show you. And I would argue that not only is there a lactate threshold um, beyond the tipping point, but I actually think it's three steps beyond that and the point at which the lactate is accumulating is actually way before that and they've got it way out at this exponential point you know and if you're looking for that like what are you doing like that's not going to work it's too intense it's just driving you into the pain zone and that's what i mean the pain bias like people are saying this needs to be hard and they can't accept the fact that the athlete isn't, isn't uncomfortable enough at the lactate threshold instead of recognizing that, okay, if they did this for like an, two hours, like you will reach the point where you're uncomfortable. Like that's what happens with endurance. But it's no, no, we're not getting trashed within, you know, t- a 20-minute period of repetition work. It must not be good. It must not be right. And I don't think that means, by the way, that lactate threshold work is somehow ineffective unless you get to the point of failure, you don't need to do that. If you get to the point of failure, you don't feel good. If you don't feel good, you can't sustain training. Again, look at the example of these people who are consistent. I would say Elliot Kipchoge definitely knows where the lactate threshold is. I don't haven't heard anything that suggests that he trains to that level, okay? But he also does like jazzercise. I think there's somebody who's in touch with the idea of finding that rhythm. And I wonder if that jazzercise If the level of respiration, I wonder if that's similar to that level. I don't have access to that environment, so I couldn't tell you. That's just speculation. Next graph, lactate threshold and onset of blood lactate accumulation. This graph is, I think, also presenting a different interpretation. Next graph, you've got an aerobic threshold and then you've got an anaerobic threshold. You can't really have aerobic and anaerobic thresholds unless you have a transference from aerobic to anaerobic systems, and that's not what happens. You're using all the energy systems at once. Fifth graph, I agree with this one. I think that you know it's representing that point of deflection. I don't know about maybe the other conclusions of uh, the graph, but like I think that that's there. For example, the percentage of VO2 max percentage of vo2 max is invalid. Next graph, wrong. Next graph. This is sort of a um I think a representation of a Steven seiler graph from his sort of summary of the polarized training and a lot of times in that graph instead of seeing lactate threshold 1 and I actually agree that that is the lactate threshold you go to lactate threshold 2. I don't that's not I don't think that's a thing and um Olav, the coach of the triathletes, Christian Blumenfeld and Gustav Eden on the Rich Roll podcast, he was talking about saying that we, there's really only one threshold and that you know you can't really actually define these other thresholds. And the other threshold is, is is kind of made up. But again, why are they making it up? Because it's like, well, this isn't hard enough at this intensity. And it's also the idea that they can't accept the fact that the athletes are doing this right and then are training at these incredible paces or these incredible watts. They can't accept the fact that they're doing that with this sort of, with that level of work that happens at lactate threshold. And so as a consequence, they train with this, like, we have to be in pain, and then they go out and they get their asses kicked because it doesn't work. But usually you see this uh, green, yellow, red thing where the first one is 2 millimole and the second is 4 millimole. That's incorrect because the point at which it accumulates is different. I've posted my data for this. And when I test different people and um, we use the lactate meter, it's different for everybody. Your steady state number is going to happen at whatever it happens at. And then it goes up from there. And if it's below, like, you know, then two millimol, that's not your lactate threshold. And you're going to be wrecking yourself for no benefit. This graph right here has this, um, the following graph, number eight, uh, aerobic threshold metabolic event number one, and then maximum lactate steady state. That's not the maximum lactate steady state. If the lactate is going up, it's not steady. Like, what does the word steady mean? What is it that people don't understand? Um, or what is it that I don't understand? Maybe, right? Uh, this last graph, I think, also does sort of an interesting thing. And you'll see and that as when you look to the red line, you see ventilation, Right? Uh, point of ventilatory threshold. And there's this other thing, respiratory compensation, which is the point, I think, where people are sort of saying, okay, now this really heavy, ragged breathing, well, that's that, when people say anaerobic threshold, or FTP maybe, that's kind of what they're looking at. It's just saying, okay, let's get up to there and try to stay just underneath that. That's not the lactate threshold. So you're, because if that was the case, you'd be telling me that the Arthur Littier guys we're going out there and running a hundred miles of their 150 to 170 mile week program for six months. They were doing 100 miles of that at f at the cyclist FTP intensity, or they're doing that at you know what I hear some runners say, ten mile, or well, they would like to say half marathon because ten miles isn't that common. So how convenient! Let's just pretend that lactate threshold is half marathon. I don't agree with this stuff. The evidence, historical evidence of how people train. Does not back this up. And I think we need to pay attention to that evidence. Now, for some questions that I might have answers to and some questions that I don't have an answer to. So, the lactate threshold is not at four millimoles. It's not at two millimoles. It is the zone, the range. Let's not use the word zone. That means too many things. It's the range in which, as you increase, resistance or work from one step to the next okay if you start at 10 minute pace and you go to 9:30 and you go to nine minutes it means that as you're, you're doing more work as you're increasing your speed you are not measuring any additional lactate in the blood when you cross to a speed at which now you're tested oh there's more lactate now you've gone past that threshold okay when you talk about a doorway, that's a threshold. The threshold is the space in between the hall and the room. If you go into the middle of the room and somebody says, where are you standing right now? You don't say I'm standing in the door. Okay. When you're standing in the door, it's because you're standing right in that rectangle created by the frame of the doorway. Okay. If you are 10 feet into the room, you're not you're not in the door anymore. And when people say that they're in threshold, that would be like somebody standing in the center of room and claiming that they're stand, still standing in the doorway. It, it's not accurate, okay? Uh, it's sort of a simplified way to think about it, but I think it's a good way to describe kind of how absurd people's claims about this stuff can be. So the question is then, does the lactate That you're producing steadily could be 2, right? It could be 2.5, could be 0.8. Does that impact the ease at which you do lactate steady state? Does lactate steady state feel easier if you have a lower blood lactate accumulation during that range? Is it possible to hold your lactate steady state for longer? if you have a lower accumulation, okay? So what does that mean, right? Um, The idea of the lactate accumulating. So people thought for a long time that lactate was produced because of anaerobic stress and it was some sort of a waste product. People thought that it functioned as an acid and that the reason why you experienced pain in your muscles was the presence of lactate acid, and I still remember in high school going on a run, Dan Castle, real tall, rangy guy, uh, great sense of humor, he announced that, well, lactate, not lactate, excuse me, right, I'm too updated now, that lactic acid isn't real. Blew my mind. I don't know really what exactly I knew about lactic acid, to be honest, or what I thought I knew, but it was just referred to like constantly. And it... Absolutely floored me, and that was one of probably one of like those first moments where I was really like, "Wait a minute, like some of the things that I'm being told or I'm hearing about, like those might not really be accurate at all, right? Totally blew my mind. So lactate is just a form of energy, and it can get broken down in the cells to be used to power muscle contraction. It also is used by other things. Your brain uses lactate. Lactate's energy. George Brooks, as uh, researcher, professor, um, discovered the process of or proved the process must exist of lactate shuttling, which means that uh, air muscle fibers that aren't being used will produce lactate, and then as if to get on a bus or a shuttle, it goes in the blood and takes the shuttle to where it's needed. So, when you have an even level of lactate in the blood, what does that mean? Well, it must mean that you're increasing your level of work, okay, well, more work, you need more energy. So, that must mean the lactate production is going up because, right, that's where you're going to get, you know, create that, gets sent over to the cells. It's the mitochondria, by the way, right, that do this. Hey, what do we say about EPO? EPO stimulates. Mitochondrial biogenesis, genesis, the creation of things, bio, life, right? Um, biogenesis, the creation of new mitochondria. Okay. EPO does that. EPO makes people really fast. Okay, because when you have more mitochondria, all right, what's gonna happen? You're gonna be able to use more energy. When you start to accumulate lactate, that just means that your mitochondria are insufficient to the amount of lactate that your body's producing. And that's why after that point, as you go harder and harder, the body just starts pumping out more and more and more and more lactate. And mitochondria are already tapped out. They can't do anything, so it just sits there in the blood. It's a traffic jam, okay? Because it doesn't produce the lactate based on your mitochondrial capacity. It's producing energy based on the energy you're demanding. And there's other energy systems going on, right? And so that accumulation of the lactate, that's why then you can get this phenomenon. Well, you know, other energy systems are doing stuff. Well, yeah, obviously you have to now be producing more energy through other pathways, pathways that function um, without oxygen because the mitochondria are already doing everything they can. So what's the value of training beyond that point? I don't really think that there is one, okay? Now, if you go well beyond that, maybe you can work on things like strength or quote-unquote speed. But if you're trying to improve that lactate threshold, doing training way beyond that just means you're going to spend very little time working in a state where your mitochondria are tapped out. And that's not going to be productive. But that idea of duration comes into play. You know, and I, I used to have this understanding too that, well, you're looking at 60 minutes. What you can do for 60 minutes is some sort of an aerobic benchmark. And then you'll find things that say, oh, no, you can do lactate threshold is three hours. I don't think there's any particular amount of time. I think it's totally subjective. And the better trained you are, you're just going to be able to do that for longer. Okay. And again, maybe that correlates to different levels of uh, minimal steady state values. And so that then also must reflect, which is another question here, does mitochondrial level lower the amount of accumulated lactate at steady state? And the answer is yes, because the lactate shuttle tells us that actually the lactate is being used by the mitochondria. So when Lydiard's athletes are running, they're, when he's trying to keep them under control, what they're doing is pedagogically, they've arrived at this point where they figured out that this is really effective. And what is happening when they're doing that is they're going up to, right, but not over And sometimes working out below intentionally, but working out below and up to, but sort of at higher levels of the point where you're using most of, and sometimes maybe even all of your mitochondria. And the consequence of that is it's like you're taking EPO because you start producing more mitochondria. And a lot of folks, and that's again, when you look at elites, remember elites take performance enhancing drugs. We don't know which ones, okay? So we can't really reach conclusions. And the fact that we don't know, we can't necessarily prove, well, maybe oh, well, they're doing this as an effective, well, maybe they're getting their additional mitochondria because they're taking drugs to do it, and then they're doing this other kind of training. And if you took away the EPO, maybe they wouldn't be good. And Maybe there's other people for whom if you took away the EPO, maybe they would be pretty good because they're training really well, so they're maybe not going to have quite as many mitochondria, but they're doing the right things for that. So again... Lower levels of lactate indicate that you have a high mitochondrial count if you are able to maintain those low levels of blood lactate as the intensity goes up. And then the point in which the lactate accumulates is because the mitochondria are overwhelmed with the work and they're processing as much as they can, but the body is producing more and more energy because you have exceeded that. And the way we get faster is we improve our ability to take in and process that lactate. And of course, that's an oversimplification, right? But from the lactate threshold perspective, right, that is what the adaptation is. That's not literally the way we get faster. There's more involved in that. Here's another question. Are lowers of lactate at maximum lactate steady state, which is not, you know, well up the curve of arithmetic or exponential growth in lactate. That's not a steady state. How people can reach that uh, conclusion is beyond me. Yeah, it's true that you can test and you can see that people will do races Well, they'll maintain for a little period, their lactate will sort of be steady for, you know, a period of time. But from the standpoint of what, you know, classically we would say is, you know, aerobic training, right? You know, that's not the lactate steady state. And the important thing is the graphical data that they're getting from that test doesn't point to that being the steady state, right? It, it's not true. It's not Because the lactate's not steady, your data isn't reflecting that. It's also the case that testing your lactate in your fingertips versus your earlobes, um, there is evidence that shows that you know there might be slight variances in the readings you get from there. Does it matter where you get it from? I don't know. Um, in terms of whether that changes the effectiveness of identifying that point. I think the reality is, you know, let's be smart about this. Obviously, you're going to cross your lactate threshold at the same point of deflection. And so, you look again to the idea of, oh, no, well, it's at four millimoles. Well, think about it. If you are thinking about this the right way, it doesn't matter where you're taking the blood from because you're going to still cross the point of accumulation. It will just, the numbers will be different which again, maybe that's significant because you know the lower millimole count within the steady state range, maybe that's reflective of some better fitness adaptation. But if you're saying, no, no, it happens at four millimoles or it happens at two millimoles, well, and then you're taking the blood from your ear and that's a little bit lower from the fingertips. Think about this. What's going to happen, folks? What's going to happen is now you're going to end up with a reading that's telling you to train even harder, right? So, when you're doing that, clearly that can't be the lactate steady state, right? Because the lactate steady state is going to be on any given day a particular amount of work. And taking the lactate from the ears or the fingertips doesn't change what you're able to do at a steady state. That's just dumb, right? But this is where people, again, they're pain bias. It needs to be hard. And the other thing is perceiving the lactate test as some sort of a performance test. The value is to identify the steady state so you can get faster. Yes, on that day, you have an indication of, well, this is where it is right now, but that makes people anxious and it makes them hyper focus on that because they're looking at that form of judgment or evaluation. Okay, so let's summarize. What do we want to understand about lactate threshold from this episode? We want to understand that lactate threshold is below the point of extreme pain and resistance. We want to understand that we don't want to be training in a state where we're experiencing lots of pain. That's not productive. We don't do well with that. Think about flow psychology. You're looking for a balance between challenge and skill that leads to feelings of competence, arousal, engagement, okay, or flow itself, being in the zone. We're not looking to go outside of that. That's not productive. That's not where good things happen. We don't want to engage with that. We can create environments that sort of force ourselves to do things that aren't comfortable or aren't productive, though, and we need to be wary of that. Now, the lactate threshold tells us that. We understand that the lactate threshold is this point that's below intensive pain, okay? And Marius Becken writes in some of his stuff on his website that You are you're you're trying to stay out of the muscular fatigue because that limits that. But if you get to that higher level of intensity, a lot of that is muscular fatigue. And you can kind of get then, right? Then we go back to our questions about adrenal response, of to what extent can really elevating or amping yourself up cause you to maybe sort of override or not fully process that level of muscular response. And we probably don't want to be getting that amped up because we want to be processing those signals and responding to them. We need those to calibrate. That's that Arthur Lydiard quote, right? Of you need to recognize and you need to pull back. And pedagogically, those terms of aerobic and are probably still useful, even if they're really kind of an example of um, an anachronism in terms of what's actually happening. But they're still highly utilitarian in terms of trying to assess what we're doing, okay? But then we've corrupted them by, you know, superseding the you know concept of what it means to be aerobic with anaerobic capacity and anaerobic threshold and this idea oh anaerobic threshold is would transition from this to this and it's like ftp and that's also lactate threshold and these don't all mean the same things okay and so if you look at you know the amount of stuff that people do don't assume that they have this incredible capacity to just handle suffering and a lot of us think like this because we're training. It's really uncomfortable and really hard. And we see people doing all of this stuff, doing so much more stuff. We just assume, wow, like they are so much more mentally capable than me. That's not true, right? That's not true. You can't uh, do that. It doesn't work like that. Okay, that pain tolerance is is pain tolerance is fake. Okay, pain tolerance is fake. You know, our our incentivization to engage with stuff, our adrenal responses, our epinephrine all of those things like those matter right the extent to which we're trying to protect a sense of identity like yeah that can change that but they did it that they're just like in a wash of pain and they're just like embracing it and that you know the rest of us can't that's just inane okay you know overall most people when they want to can handle this handle suffering can handle distress okay I think a big differential becomes whether or not you ultimately believe it to be productive, you know, or moreover, whether or not you see results happening. I think for any of us, if we're not really seeing results, our willingness to go out there and torture ourselves is going to really decline. And I feel, frankly, for some of the top level athletes who, you know, when you're succeeding despite themselves, because they're at a level where they're not really improving, but they're winning or they're getting really close to winning. And so they just double down on that intensity and that, you know, pain level of training. But the reality is you should be improving steadily. You shouldn't be like plateauing when you're like 20. You know, you should be improving, you know, again, in the classical sense, you should be improving what you can do aerobically for a long time. And it's about finding that the level here is different than what people are saying recognize that people don't know what they're talking about. And I mean, I say that when the full awareness that you could apply that to myself on the Black Cats Run podcast here and say, well, you don't know what you're talking about. Well, you're you're entitled to reach that conclusion. That's fine. But I really am very confident because the way the, you know, evidence from the actual examples, you know, I think provides validation for that. We're not talking about Getting into some carnival of pain, lactate threshold isn't uncomfortable, and I've, you know, been doing this and working on this. And I said that in the first um, light bulb burst episode that I'm I'm going to apply this, and I'm applying it, and it's not hard. Okay, it's not hard in the way that we think it's hard. It's very doable. Okay, it's challenging in that you need to do it. You need to make the time to do it. Making time to exercise has always been something that's come. Easy for me. So that also makes it easy. The challenge isn't how I have to get in this state of severe physical distress. It's not the five to six mile tempo run experience that John Marcus and Steve Magnus are representing in their podcast. I thought that was a really good episode. In general, I genuinely really enjoy their podcast, but there's little bits and pieces that I just think sometimes are off. And I think at the end of that episode, they didn't really represent what lactate threshold is. Lactate threshold, you have to measure it, you get a lactate meter, you perform a test where every three minutes, and there's other ways to do this, but a common test is every three minutes, increase your intensity, maybe it's 20 seconds a mile, maybe it's 20 to 30 watts, and then at the end of each interval, you take the lactate. And at some point, you'll go up another step and the lactate will accumulate. And you go up a step, and it'll accumulate even more. And now you're beyond. What you want to do is you want to think about what did it feel like, the step before you had that higher lactate reading, because that's the level. And I think, honestly, most people when they take the test, they can anticipate and recognize when they're going to turn that corner. And they can tell this next step, it's probably going to be higher. And and people know. And I think that means that we can feel for it. And so, pedagogically, we need to bring that out. And empirically, we can look at that. And that's how we're going to apply this concept. But two millimoles isn't useful. And, the, and four millimoles is even less useful because it's just a higher value. So it's going to be even further away. I think we've also proved in this episode today that when you're looking online, you're trying to find this stuff, you're going to find a bunch of gibberish. And our instinct is to sort of look at the first thing and be like, okay, good, there's the definition, I get it. And if you look at that, and then you look at something else, and you look at something else, you realize it's all incorrect. And the way, only way ultimately I, I feel that you're going to be able to really nail this down for yourself is is to test it. And I, and, although I acknowledge, there are people who have figured this out. And I think I see with some of these people and talking to them that there have been periods in their athletics when they've done it. But then they have also felt like, okay, now's the time for me to, I can finally go to the good training and I can stop doing this so-called base training. That base training is sort of a, a misnomer in a sense. There's the time where you're getting better, you're improving the amount of work you can do easily. And then there's the time where you transition and you try to maybe do specific things in practice that improve specific performance. I hope you've enjoyed today's episode of Black Cat's Run. We're going to do some more episodes where we talk more about lactate threshold. I'm going to offer more evidence and proof for why the lactate threshold is not only the point at which the lactate, after which the lactate starts to accumulate, but also to provide evidence to better demonstrate that training at that intensity isn't really that hard and that if you can't recognize that, there's going to be too much cognitive dissonance as you're engaging with your training and you're going to just not be able to resist the anxiety that you're not suffering enough to get better. If you're enjoying the podcast, you can check us out on Black Cat's Run. The graphs and visuals that I mentioned in today's episode are available there as well as a bunch of other great stuff that is designed to be illustrative of the kinds of concepts and questions that we're exploring and wondering about on the podcast. Thanks for listening to today's episode and we'll catch you next time.